Hello and welcome, F5 community. You are tuned into episode four of This Month in Security from Dev Central, F5 Security Incident Response Team, and F5 Labs. I'm Aubrey with Dev Central, and we've got David, Tafara, and Aaron here with us this month. And of course, we've got a wonderful bit of news to talk about, as well as a feature article from Labs to finish up. So first up this month, I'd like to bring on Aaron Brailsford. Aaron, how are you? Thanks, Aaron. I'm good. Thank you. You? I'm doing quite well. It's been, uh, I, I guess it was a, a decent month for, well, quarter for us as far as the QSN is concerned. So, you know, I felt like I could breathe a little bit easier after uh, after our Wednesday. Yeah, it's been, a, it was a, a decent month, decent quarter for us. Like you say, the, the QSN went quite smoothly, I think. Um relatively quiet QSN, nothing too huge in there. So, but if anybody missed that, there's a previous video on this channel that covers that as well as obviously our official quarterly advisory. Look out for the next one in February. But other than that, lots of news as always. So I pulled sort of three or four things out of the This Week in Securities that we have on DevCentral and we can talk about those for a, a few minutes. The first thing I pulled out was the CISA, so the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency opened a, a 60 day request for information period. Uh, they've got proposed cyber incident reporting requirements. They're based on the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act, which was signed into law in March in the US. These names are really long and annoying. Um, so mostly for US viewers, I guess, but the RFI is open to, to anybody, whether they work on critical infrastructure or not. And I would recommend going and taking a look at the relevant documents and, and see whether you think you have any feedback for CISA. Um, F5 and the F5 CERT at least have a really good direct relationship with CISA. And I can tell you that they are genuinely interested in improving security, not just paying lip service to laws, and they really value feedback from people who are actively working in the industry. So this is our chance, our collective hour, to make sure that the rules and procedures that get implemented off the back of that legislature are actually you know, workable and, and realistic. Yeah, I think, I mean, from my point of view, it's I, I spent far too long reading and uh, poring over GDPR when it when it first came out years ago. So I'm always kind of, uh, you know, interested in legislation, anything that can kind of effectively act as the stick. I feel like you kind of need that carrot and stick in security. And I think we've tried carrots for a long time and there haven't really necessarily been enough sticks. So it looks like this might be another little stick to use, but a stick with a good intent, as you said. I think what's going to be really interesting, and, and clearly, as you said, Aaron, this is a great chance for people to come in and have their say because it's going to be a case of you know how does CISA how does the legislation define a significant breach what does it mean by you know the ransomware reporting period you know when do the 24 hours start for ransomware reports when does the 72 hours start for for other breach reports and, and what constitutes as I said a significant breach I think there's going to be so much uh, ambiguity possibly and this is one thing that GDPR does really well I think which is it's kind of intentionally ambiguous you know the language is such that it's about best efforts best endeavors uh, it focuses on the impact of privacy rather than kind of technical controls so it's going to be really really interesting to see what kind of feedback is given and where this ends up going what what do you guys think this will mean for manufacturers like 
uh, F5 uh, or, or other security manufacturers? Will this lead to, um, you know, policy changes that are sweeping and impactful? Or, as Aaron mentioned, is, is this kind of lip service? So I, I think this will lead to policy changes. I mean, as, as far as impacting manufacturers go, I think these requirements will be impactful to our own um, technology services cybersecurity team, right? The people that manage our infrastructure and, and what we use to supply services to other people, whether that's, you know, our cloud services like F5 Distributed Cloud or whether that's um, our support organization, those things. Um, there are certainly other pieces of, of legislation coming down the pipe relating to software bill and materials. And those will have probably a, a huge impact, I think undeniably a huge impact on uh, manufacturers of both software and hardware. Um, so I was I was going to check out, and this is this bill's really about uh, reporting, right? It's it's not about mandating certain kinds of say controls, removing default passwords, that kind of thing. Uh, it's really about how and where should people that, that manage and own critical infrastructure services report that to the government effectively. Yeah, and what should they report back? There's um, lines in there about um, you know having to report back how you were breached, what what. Um, well, let's say it was ransomware, you know, what ransomware hit you? How did it get in? And I think that's where some of the difficulties around making this actually workable will come. Possibly, maybe not what malware were you breached with, or maybe, maybe not how did they get in, although that can often be very difficult to ascertain. But certainly things like when it comes to attribution, you know, was this a, a foreign nation state attack? Attribution is is a really thorny topic, at least personally speaking. So, from the sounds of it, it may be it may be more um, focused or or impact impacting for companies that are selling services. Is that maybe a fair assessment? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Certainly for for companies like F five, the the services arm that's. Um, you know, if, certainly if we were classed as critical infrastructure or perhaps, perhaps suppliers do critical infrastructure, yeah, then those, that's where those reporting requirements will kick in. Yeah, I think that'll be the key because clearly it's not going to drive, said, like I said, like a, um, a change in technical controls. Uh, so for organizations like F5, for example, it might not drive the direction necessarily of, say, products or services. But as Aaron said, if, if you know, one of the F5 services is being used to protect some uh, critical infrastructure, that becomes, you know, a separate issue. Yes. Sorry. So just adding, I guess, on to what Aaron said, I think part of the difficulty with some of these, you know, rules, legislation and guidelines is this is around, you know, what, when and how to report these incidences, because there's so many different ways in which organizations can be breached. Sometimes it makes it very difficult to have hard guidelines to say, for example, you need to report this within three days and here's the information we need, because you might not be able to get all of that information within such a short time uh, window, depending on the level of sophistication and the kind of breach that you experience. So I don't know how much flexibility they're going to give in that and how strict they will be on the enforcing of that if you don't supply all the information within the window or if you supply all the information, but, you know, after that, you know, time period has expired. So it would be pretty interesting to see how they take that. The, the last question for me that I have on this one is, do you guys think this will impact um, other other nations as they develop cybersecurity law out there? Is this um, going to be a, a a trendsetter, or is this more of a, a following? Are, are there other 
countries that are already doing this that that we may be unaware of here in the U.S. I think that that what what CISA says, um, CISA, however you want to pronounce that, it does tend to get picked up and looked at by other countries. You know, I'm not saying that say the EU or the UK is going to pick this up and run with it and implement it in exactly the same manner, um, but I think with some of the other legislature we have seen a sort of synchronization of, of different countries laws and i think there is a benefit to that if we all apply radically different controls then for global companies that that work across borders complying with all of those different requirements gets gets really really difficult yeah, I think that that'll be the key, you know, unlike, you know, something like GDPR, which does kind of affect multiple countries, you know, because of it affecting EU citizens, which could be so from anywhere. This feels a bit more kind of localized to the US. But I think as Aaron was saying, the, the great and even though it's only really applicable to critical infrastructure, I think the hope is that by the time organizations have updated policies and, and have better practices for reporting, they'll do that across the board, whether it's critical infrastructure or whether it's a different country. Aaron, I also noticed that you had yet another uh, piece of supply chain news out there. In fact, we got a couple of couple of supply chain related news articles. Um, what's yes. this about the LoFi gang? So, actually, on the topic of of having to report back how you were breached, the next you know three things that I was going to talk about were how you might be breached. So, the first one was some research by Checkmarks on. Um, code hosted in in repositories like npm and github and other code platforms and they we've talked about research like this in this week in security before they found that there were at least 200 over 200 packages in those platforms all of which linked back to a single gang called lofi gang um, according to their research the focus of all of these packages so 200 and some odd packages was harvesting credit card details and credentials for gaming and streaming platforms. I think the interesting thing for me anyway that Daminda called out when he wrote this week in security was how mainstream attack for hire has become. Like Lo-Fi Gang have a YouTube channel with video tutorials on how to use their tools. They have you know, Discord bots where you can easily uh, have the bot use stolen card details to buy stuff. And I'm guessing that like a lot of the high profile ransomware groups, they probably have a customer service team. Yeah, what's, I mean, from, from our point of view in labs, you know, we're finding a couple of really significant trends recently. I mean, one anecdotally, with you know the number of conversations and 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 um and work we're doing at the moment looking into these kind of supply chain attacks is kind of going through the roof particularly with regards to libraries code repositories that kind of thing you know supply chain is a huge area of information risk management so when i think a lot of the time when we're speaking about supply chain at the moment it's about code it's about libraries things like github and npm so those kind of incidents seem to be going through the roof. The one thing I thought really interesting with this case, these libraries, was that in the majority of cases, the malware, the kind of malicious code, wasn't in the um, the kind of malicious uh, malicious library itself. 
it were the dependencies of this library that were malicious. So actually, you know, if you were scanning for a library, maybe some kind of automated code scanning, um, you're very unlikely to find malicious activity or malicious kind of code in that library itself, because again, it's the dependencies. And this really just goes to, you know, echo something that we've been seeing and reminding people for a while, which is, you know, if you're relying on third party, you know, open source code is to, to check dependencies as well, because you never actually know which of those libraries or dependencies could bring a vulnerability in. It, it, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that I brought up a couple of months back uh, on this month in security was uh, the amount of, you know, most most of my job is is spent doing social media stuff uh, for the, you know, evangelism portion of what Dev Central does. And so as such, I'm involved in quite a bit of social media. And one of the things that I keep seeing out there from package developers is, you know, hey, I stopped updating this package, you know, so-and-so you may want to stop relying on these packages. And, and Aaron and I have talked a little bit in the past about how important it is for developers. I, I sound like a broken record, I'm sure, to definitely make sure you understand what packages are uh, in your code and what you're relying on. You have to know those packages as well as you know your own code, if you can. That That's for sure. Yeah, yeah this... it's, it's hard not to come back to that XKCD cartoon, right? With the... <laughs> The whole of the internet is being held up by that one tiny package maintained by one guy in Wisconsin. It's <laughs> yeah, because I, I think part of one of the reasons why some of these supply chain at, at, attacks are really difficult to deal with is it's kind of like, you know, picture those, you know, Russian nested dolls. You know, you, you use a package that uses a package that uses a package that uses a package sort of, you know, how far in is it reasonable or feasible for you to go and do your due diligence? And, you know, is that far enough? Yeah, it's, I, I it's, do think the push to mandatory software bill of materials is going to uncover, it's going to turn over a lot of rocks, right? It's going to force us to unpack those Russian dolls and and actually see what we're pulling into to products, not just F5, but every, every company that uses software or produces software is going to have the same, have to do the same introspection. Yeah, I think we, we need, as an industry, we need to move to a place of, uh, something similar to the, what the web has, which is, you know, the web wouldn't work without certificates because it's certificates that kind of underpin trust and reliability. Now, there's a whole bunch of issues with domains and, and certs that we could I could spend hours talking about. But it, it, you know, serves the basic function of you can inspect certificate and be confident that you're going to the site that you expected to go to. I think what's really interesting with these supply chain attacks is it's actually a stretch to call them supply chain attacks because in these specific cases... They're not legitimate libraries which have been maliciously, you know, tampered with, which we've seen plenty of examples from. You know, these are just these are these are more like typo squatting kind of attacks that we've seen on the web. You know, uh, PayPal.com instead of PayPal, it's the same kind of thing where you know these malicious developers are creating libraries which purport to have this really useful functionality. Um, and to Aubrey's point, I think, you know, if they see an old library that's maybe not been updated in two or three years, but another one which, which claims to do the same thing but has been updated a month ago, wait, well, let's go and get the new version. It's going to have more functionality and, and you know, it was maintained. Um, but developers that aren't spending the time to investigate those libraries uh, don't realise that, you know, they're in no way kind of official or authentic. I, I would imagine yeah. we'll start to see uh, a few bad actors out there really go after uh, open source projects that are maybe, you know, have a, a lax maintainer. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, if if I were looking to be a bad actor, that's probably where I would start these days. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think maybe no. we're starting to see the leading edge of that trend. Yeah, I would agree. Now, you also had a couple of uh, a couple of zero days uh this this past month that you picked out. Is that correct, Aaron? Yeah, so off the back of um another thing from CISA, CISA has a known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Um and again, CISA's recommendations are basically geared towards the US federal government, right? They're what they call the federal civilian executive branch. Um, but that list, like a lot of the other guidance they produce, isn't just relevant to US federal government. It's worth paying attention to wherever you are. Um, they maintain this, this active list of things that they know are being exploited. There's an argument to say that by the time it ends up on that list, it might already be too late, but it's it's better than nothing. Um, and last month, they added three vulnerabilities to that list, and two of those were the Microsoft Exchange Zero Days that made a ton of news. Proxy Not Shell, it's basically two different CVEs, um, along with uh, an Atlassian Bitbucket vulnerability. So, I mean, Exchange was in the news a lot, right, in the last month. If we go back a little bit further, Proxy Shell was discovered by a researcher called Orange Psy. Um, they are well worth watching, and maybe we can put a link to their Twitter account in the description for this. Um, they discovered Proxy Logon, Proxy Oracle, Proxy Shell, and Proxy Relay. Um, those are all patched in Microsoft Exchange. But as you can probably tell, Proxy Not Shell from the last month is quite closely related to Proxy Shell. Um, and what I thought was interesting was that Orange Sci actually predicted that Proxy Not Shell would probably exist and be found in the future at the point that he found Proxy Shell. And it turned out that cut to about six months later or so, and he was right. Do we? Do you know if there's evidence of wide exploitation of this one, or is this one a little bit more academic at this point, as it was found by a researcher? Proxy Not Shell widely exploited and it exploded very quickly. Um, it does require some. Uh, let's go with suboptimal configuration, perhaps, to exist, <laughs> and it is authenticated, not unauthenticated. Uh, but still, if someone has popped credentials, for example, which, again, breach lists, right? There's Happens. hundreds of gigabytes of credentials floating around out there for for pay um, and can get into exchange, they could elevate themselves to the highest level of privileges. Sorry, I was going to say what makes some of these things scary, I think, especially is the reach of some of these, you know, uh, softwares like Exchange, it is, you know, widely used around the world, affecting some of the largest, most critical organizations, governments. So it's uh, really something to uh, to uh, to be worried about. For a lot of people, the alternative is to use Exchange somewhere else, right? A lot of people are using Microsoft 365 instead of hosting their own, but it's still Exchange. You know, um, yeah. different issue with with Microsoft uh, Mail hosted. I was reading about recently was to do with the I think what they call it Outlook message encryption and a kind of weakness that actually Microsoft aren't going to resolve. They don't see it as big enough, being a big enough issue. So very different to what we're talking about now. But the point I wanted to get across was that obviously once you start consuming it as a service, 
there's nothing you can do to patch. You know, clearly cloud type SaaS infrastructures generally have the kind of size and manpower or person power, I should say, to kind of patch that adequately. But ultimately, you're at the whim of the provider. If the provider decides not to patch something, you don't really have a choice apart from to take everything elsewhere. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that I think a good number of the vulnerable exchange servers, at least this is what I'd seen reported, appear to be exchange servers left running where companies have migrated to 0365, right? And they've maybe lost sight or track of the infrastructure they had in-house. You know, we'll keep it knocking around. It's, you know, in case we ever have to come back or ever have to in-house something or it's running some specific service that couldn't go to 0365. Um, and then they get forgotten about or not patched. And patching exchange is it's probably one of the harder Microsoft products to, to actually patch. Something worth mentioning, I think, about Proxy Notshell and just in general for the future, in one of the recent uh, feature updates um, for Exchange, I want to say this was the August CU, um, Microsoft introduced a sort of automatic remediation service that you can turn on in Exchange. And if you had that turned on, then at the point that Proxy Notshell was discovered as a zero day, or at least as soon as possible afterwards, they would automatically push uh, rewrite rules into your Exchange, into your locally hosted Exchange, to mitigate that attack. Now, to be clear, they did have to change that mitigation three or four times, probably, after it was released. Um, and, you know, that's not a great look, but it happens to all of us. Um, these things evolve and aren't completely understood because everybody is throwing everything at getting this thing mitigated as fast as possible. But if you have the automatic updates turned on, you get those rewrites as soon as Microsoft have pivoted and, and fixed the next variant. Well, for those of us that don't have those on, however, uh, I think we uh, probably at F5 have a billion customers that defend their exchange platforms with uh, with Big IP uh, and some other F5 gear. But what uh, do, do you know? Is there an iRule that would be able to help with this at this point, or is something like uh, AWAF if this is you know uh, an API based call, that kind of thing? So we do actually have some ASM signatures, uh, which are available in Advanced WAF and Nginx AppProtect and F5 Distributed Cloud WAF um, for Proxy Not Shell. And yes, it's worth pointing out that, that when big impactful CVs like this happen, if they are delivered via you know HTTP, HTTPS, we do have a security research team who try and jump on those and get either new signatures out or make sure that there are existing signatures that catch them. Uh, to use an example from literally a couple of days ago, um, straying outside of the month for this month in security, but uh, Apache Commons text had a, a critical vulnerability fixed and disclosed, um, which looks a lot like Log4Shell, the Log4J problem in a similar area. And when that was disclosed, we we took a look, the Royal We, the guys in Tel Aviv took a look, and that was mitigated at day zero by signatures that were created in the wake of the log4 shell vulnerability. So if you kept your signatures up to date in advanced WAF or Nginx AppProtect, or if you're using F5 distributed cloud WAF, 
um, you were already protected from that when it came out. Nice. I think we've got one more that we wanted to talk about pretty quick. This one is brand spanking new, so we may not have a ton on it, but that the uh, the Black Lotus UEFI, and I called it a root kit the other day, but boot kit, much uh, d- definite distinction there. Yeah. So kind of coming back to ways that you could be compromised again, um, boot kits, at, you know, typically these are used by more motivated adversaries, shall we say. Um, often you need physical access to a device to get it in there, or you at least need some way to have a user run a piece of malicious code. Um, they're not usually delivered through you know, websites other than maybe downloading the executable. Um, but it, this prompts an interesting question. How much do you think that a UEFI bootkit would sell for? I know Boy. the answer, so I can't guess. <laughs> that would be unfair. <laughs> I have no that is idea. true. We probably all know the answer if we read the article. Um, <laughs> yeah, you see, now in my head, buying buying a well written boot kit would would be an expensive deal. That, like I say, they're they're usually used by by advanced persistent threat actors um, or nation states. Only it turns out that for as little as five thousand uh, dollars plus two hundred dollars a year for each future upgrade. You can buy yourself a UEFI bootkit called Black Lotus, which, to put that into perspective, um, I looked this up earlier, an Adobe Creative Cloud subscription, right, which, Aubrey, you're going to be familiar with, with uh, Adobe Premiere, is about $600 a year. So for a little under 10 times the cost of an Adobe subscription, you get a bootkit that you can use to gain yourself a persistent foothold on someone's x86 laptop um it claims you know a whole bunch of features like being able to bypass secure boot um it's got anti-virtualization anti-debugging uh can bypass uac and windows and windows defender and code signing which would let you load you know arbitrary device drivers that aren't signed bypass all of the microsoft restrictions on that um and it, it works worldwide, although I thought the most interesting comment I saw about that was it works worldwide, except for in the Commonwealth of Independent States. I'll let people draw their own conclusions for that. Not surprising. Um, yeah. And and it's a lot smaller than Adobe Creative Cloud because it's just 80 kilobytes. And <laughs> I don't know how big Adobe Creative Cloud is these days, but it's going to be a lot bigger than 80K. 80 gigabytes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would not surprise me. Um, I think this makes it considerably more expensive than your average botnet for hire. Prices of those seem to have fallen to, you know, pennies on the dollar in the last few years. But with a botnet, what can you do? You can launch a denial of service. You can annoy someone, frustrate them, temporarily deny them of their income. But but what can you do with a persistent foothold into an organization, right? You can be there silently watching, planning to exfiltrate company secrets or, you know, launch a ransomware attack and actually extort the company out of a large sum of money. Yeah, and to to your point, 
Aaron. You know, $5,000 sounds like a lot, especially when you compare it to botnets and some other ransomware strains you can buy. But when it's when you get that persistent foothold and you can go and deploy ransomware or steal intellectual property, which could net the attackers millions, if not more, uh, yeah. clearly it's a really small outlay. Um, but to me, it just really reinforces that trend we've been seeing for a number of years now of attacks you know, tools being becoming a service. You know, you no longer need to be an APT. You no longer need to have specific skills in creating malware or deploying a phishing campaign or even getting a boot or rootkit, as, as it turns out. You know, it's literally the case of having a maybe a spare credit card, probably a stolen credit card, to buy it, and then you get that persistent foothold. Um, and the capabilities, if true, as far as I know, it's not been spotted in the wild, um, but it's kind of been claimed and advertised. But if its capabilities are true, as to what Aaron said, you know, things like bypassing secure boot and so on, it's, uh, it's, it, it's difficult to understate, sorry, it's difficult to overstate how dangerous uh, and worrying this kind of um, malware is. Well, it's interesting to give it some perspective. Like when I first heard about, especially the price, um, it made me think of uh, a school district that I helped when I was uh, still an SE here at F5. And this school district, uh, a, a kid had stolen mom and dad's credit card and paid a, for a botnet so they could avoid a test. That botnet was $5,000. Hmm. Right. Now for $5,000, they could own the school. Yeah. <laughs> own the whole thing <laughs> and now so, if he was renting that botnet it would probably be $25 yeah exactly <laughs> right? it's, prices yeah. have crashed and this stuff has become completely commoditized and yeah David's right this hasn't been seen in the wild as far as I know and it makes very bold claims so it could be you know a whole lot of vaporware right I mean who's who are you going to complain to? This isn't like saying I bought Adobe Creative Cloud and you didn't give me anything. This is like I bought this highly dubious tool off some guy on the dark web and you didn't give me anything. Well, what are you going to do? But, so, so it's either the scariest boot kit ever or it is like the most the most clever shipping scammer ever. Yeah, yeah, or it's, or it's a brilliant scam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because for some of these actors, you know, depending on their reputation, some of them do care about their reputation and their reviews. So they will make sure that whatever they're selling is high quality. So um, I, I don't remember from the article if they did mention whether this was a reputable known actor that was selling it or if it was, you know, some fly by night, you know, the seller. Last I saw it was somewhat questionable, uh, but still a little scary to, you know, to ignore. Yes. No, it's, it's a, that's a good point. You know, that's, we think of these tools and, 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 you know, botnets or credentials or whatever you're buying on the dark web as being, ooh, I'm, I'm giving my money to, you know, some shady guy down an alleyway. But yeah, these are run like businesses. They, their reputation is their livelihood, I suppose, because they want repeat trade. This isn't, you know, some guy down a dark alleyway. This is essentially a business that you're buying from and they're run like businesses. Well, looks like we've got uh, ourselves quite a stack of, of interesting news articles from the month. Um, and it definitely a lot of fun stuff to chew on, some themes that we've carried through the past few months um, and, and quite a bit of great news. Now, in terms of research, though, um, I've got to say, you know, we definitely always have some amazing things, interesting things going on over at Labs. Um, David, what uh, what kind of stuff do you have to uh, to to share with us this month. 
So we've got a few things that I'm uh, really excited to share about, actually. One is um, a, an article um, entitled Post Breach, um, which is going to be hopefully the start of some more regular kind of research and, and articles that we put out, which is really, you know, not just looking at, you know, very large data sets, drawing large conclusions and so on, but really taking a really deep dive into one specific kind of attack. Because I think, you know, it's easy to look at reports and to look at charts and to, to spot trends, but as security practitioners, I think there's nothing like having a deep dive in terms of, you know, the start to finish, you know, soup to nuts kind of approach and deep dive in terms of how an attack was conducted. I think you can kind of learn the nuances, how attackers did different things, how they, you know, lived off the land and adapted to problems they had. And that's exactly what this article does. It goes into, you know, a good amount of detail into what ultimately resulted in, in, a, in a successful breach of an organisation. But using the unique insights that um, one of the F5 SOCs had, we're able to give some redacted and anonymized uh, kind of detail, but we're still, we think, an exciting kind of insight in terms of the approach that this clearly very motivated attack group had in, in breaching an organization. And they combine lots of different tactics from social engineering to, you know, initial compromise and, and moving laterally and, and hiding their tracks. So a really interesting read, uh, I think, and, and well worth everyone checking out. Coming up uh, on Monday, we hope will be the new instance of the SAS, the Sense Intel series. Um, so clearly when we talk, you know, when Aaron kind of mentions a new CVE, that's something that we track a lot. Uh, using the sensors that we have all across the world, we look at the most commonly attempted exploitation of any given CVE. So that's coming up Monday. Keep an eye out for that. Just to kind of tease some of the findings, some of the things we've seen over the past few months, bizarrely has been a bit of a downturn in the number of attacks and probes and kind of exploit attempts across the sensor network. We're still digging into what we think that is, but one of the contributing factors was that July of this year had an unusually large number of attacks and sensor sweeps going on. So with things that kind of seem to be stabilizing, uh, but one vendor in particular seems to be uh, fairly heavily targeted at the moment. I won't point fingers, so you'll have to read the article to find out who that is. But an attack, and this is something we see fairly regularly, actually, is a CVEs that have been out for years, two, three years. Uh, the one I'm thinking of at the moment, I believe is a 2018 vulnerability, I think has seemingly come out of nowhere. So just two months ago, this really quite old CV has suddenly been exploited, um, you know, significantly. So again, worth checking out that article. Um, but I invited Farah along with us today because I'm really excited about uh, his experience, his background working in defending organisations against automation and bots. Uh, and so as another tease, we're planning on releasing a whole series of articles in terms of uh, the different kind of bots, their capabilities, how they evade defences and so on. Uh, and so I'm hoping Farah can share a bit more about that. Cool. Uh, thanks a lot, David. Um, so we're planning, you know, holiday seasons coming up. Everyone's, you know, trying to get their Christmas shopping done. Uh, one of the biggest problems within the retail space is reseller bots. So these are bots that go and buy up, you know, limited inventory items and then sort of make sure that people can't get their hands on them. And then they resell them for a much higher price on the secondary market. I'm sure you remember a few years ago, the shortages of the PS5s, um, you know, you couldn't get your hands on 
Amazon one, but you could buy it for five times the price, you know, on eBay and all these, you know, secondary markets. So, you know, going into the holiday season, we decided that it, it might be a good idea to put together a series of articles around these reseller bots, going into a bit of detail about their origin, you know, how did they even come about, uh, the ecosystem that supports them, who makes them, why do they make them, how much do they sell them for, who buys them, why do they buy them, how do they use them, how much money are they making going into the economics, and also because of our unique uh, position, defending, you know, some of the largest e-commerce sites in the world, we'll be able to provide a lot of detailed data about the volume, the scale of these attacks, how much um, each of those, you know, uh, actors is actually purchasing, how are, how they're reselling them, how much profit in sort of the actual business model that these uh, um, actors are going through. Uh, we also have uh, uh, one of the articles is going to focus on the uh, different ways and approaches that retailers have tried to use in the past to defend against these um, reseller bots. Um, and we have a rating scale on the efficacy of each of those approaches. So this goes from very low tech approaches all the way to the most sophisticated uh, approaches, giving some hints in terms of what the pros and cons of each of those approaches are, as well as which of those approaches are going to be uh, the most effective. Um, so, you know, they're still de de determining whether it will be four or five articles um, in that particular series, but I think we're super excited about it. Uh, we believe this will be one of the most detailed exposés on these reseller bots, just due to our unique position and the amount of data and information that we have about these kinds of bots. Yeah, from from my point of view, you know, working with Defire and the team uh, over recent months, you know, I've come up to speed and learned a lot in terms of I think what's really interesting is it's not just the kind of technical aspects, which I'll, I'll come back to in a second. It's it's trying to get across the business impact and and really trying to get business leaders to understand the problems of bots. I think it's certainly the claim has been. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a gamer. I don't game as much as I used to be, but I was clearly kind of affected by the GPU shortages. And a lot of people were kind of pointing to to vendors or not vendors, but manuf um, resellers uh, who seem to not be too bothered. You know, ultimately, if they had a bot purchase their GPU instead of a real human, you know, who cares? But clearly, you look at Twitter, and you can start seeing how, you know, the the amount of bot or automated traffic hitting your service or site can have very real world and business impact. It's not just, you know, selling the same thing to a different person. Um, one thing I picked up on a lot is just the sheer wealth of abilities or technical capabilities of these bots to bypass defenses. I mean, they are going to the nth degree to look like and act like humans. Um, in fact, you know, there was, we, we frequently talk about capture. That's one of the kind of long known, long kind of hated, you know, methods of trying to detect and buy or, or get around the current, you know, uh, bot detection. Um, but we've seen evidence for a long time of that being bypassed. There are new vendors coming out with, you know, new methods of doing it. So, I think it's important to understand both the kind of business impacts, but also the technical capabilities of these bots and uh, and really what you might be missing. Yeah, I think I think what you mentioned, David, I think is really spot on. Uh, one of the articles, you know, spends you know a significant amount of time going into the business side of things. I think you know why should you as a retailer care? Because the assumption is always that well, if I'm a reseller and I'm selling products, if the bot buys up all the products, then I should be happy. Why should I care as long as I get paid? Um, the article goes into a lot of detail explaining why that is actually not in your best interest. Um, a simple example of one of the reasons why you should care is you know. Let's 
let's say you were selling PS5s, a legitimate user who buys a PS5 is going to buy the PS5. They might buy an additional controller. They might buy some new games to play on the new uh, PS5. So you're making a lot more money, whereas the bot doesn't care about the controllers and the games. The bot is just going to buy the PS5s. So when you look at the bigger picture of things, you're actually making less money. Um, so the, a lot of these insights uh, uh, will be um, in that article to really make it clear for business owners and for retailers and um, sort of, you know, manufacturers why they should care about these kinds of bots and how they're being negatively impacted. From my perspective, uh, the thing that the thing that I thought of reading about about these reseller bots, two, two things quick. Um, one of the things while I was out this summer experiencing summertime, right, and, and nice weather where, where I am, there's not a lot of nice weather. So um, I went out and saw some outdoor concerts. And one of the things that people kept asking about is, man, did you notice the tickets were gone for this show in like seconds? And people kept asking, you know, boy, how does that happen? And I'm sitting there thinking like, OK, logistically, how does this happen? <laughs> Calculating like how I would go about because I mean, you always got to put yourself in the black hat shoes, right? Um, so I, you know, went went ahead and, uh, and and tried to figure out how to do that, and you know, theorized. But another thing that I thought about was uh, an SE here at F five, and I used to buy uh, NFT comic books, and that was something that was really fun until these bots showed up, and like as soon as the comic would hit, I mean, really less than one second, gone. Every single copy, 30,000 copies of uh, an NFT comic gone in less than one second. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what we also go into is, you know, the way that this particular space has become professionalized, because back in the day as an individual, you could write your own script, you know, that actually just goes and purchases it. But the problem is, if you try to do that today, your script is going to be a fraction of a second slower than the highly optimized ones that are created by professionals. You will not be able to purchase anything. So, you know, there is reasons why there are people that are focused on absolutely optimizing it. And these individuals limit the number of people that they sell these bots to because they realize that if they sell their bots to too many people, then their bots are competing against themselves. Therefore, it's a bad customer experience. These people can't buy any inventory. So they have specific quotas around how many of them they will sell to what people who want to do what with them. So a lot of that insight will be um, in that series of articles as well. I, I took a look at the um, the the early copy of, of some of those articles that you sent over and I think you really nicely articulate the difficulties of defending against them. It's one thing, you know, we mentioned capture just then. And if you go back a decade, yeah, these were scripts written by a person in their bedroom kind of thing. And they were really easy to defend against. I'll throw a capture in front of it, you're done. Or, you know, maybe use uh, client-side JavaScript. Can At one point it was as simple as can the bot even execute JavaScript? Nope, okay, it's not a human. All right, it can execute JavaScript, but does it behave like a human being on the other end? Nope, okay, it's a bot. Now it's really, really, really difficult to discern bot traffic from human traffic. They're really good at pretending to be people. Well, at the end of the day, especially if uh, there really are people at the end, you know, that's one technique that we've seen where actually a bot effectively makes a call to a human click farm. It's it's a, you know, a room full of people who are 
actual humans interacting with captures and doing other things. So there's always going to be that element where there's a possibility that the bot, quote unquote, is using real humans to do some work. Um, this is why, you know, it, it's always going to be a layered defense. There's no one silver bullet for for combating automation. But um, it does. Yeah, there's a lot more kind of intricacies um, and capability of these, of these bots than uh, I think a lot of people realize. Yeah, I would be remiss at this point if I didn't mention that if you do find yourself under attack uh, from bots or anything else, if you phone into F5 support and mention that, then you'll get through to the F5 cert and we will help you. We have access to all of the tools and tricks that F5 has, and that includes being able to rapidly onboard people for you know F5 distributed cloud or Shape, Silverline, those kind of cloud technologies, as well as helping you deploy uh, on-premise or you know own cloud or self-cloud hosted big IP instances, all of that kind of good stuff. So I can't go without mentioning that. Well, I'd like to uh, thank you, Tafara, for that amazing contribution. I can't wait till we can actually post that out on social and, and really share that with the world. Um, great to see you on the show. And uh, thanks, David, for stopping by. And as always, Aaron, I'm sure I'll see you in five minutes from now or something. <laughs> Probably. Thank you so much. And of course, thank you, F5 community, for tuning in to episode four of This Month in Security. I'm Aubrey from Dev Central. Have a great F5 day. <laughs>